Hey, Nick. <sighs> How you doing, Jake? Well, we get to talk about Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead stuff on the pod tonight, so things can't be all bad, right? Yeah, um, uh, about that. Hey, man, can I ask you a favor? What up? Can we please make this the last comic book episode for this podcast? Are you serious? Dude, I love the Rustic Film guys just as much as you, and it's cool that they worked on a Marvel show and all, but uh, it's Moon Knight. Our pod is called Scary Stuff. I, I thought we were supposed to review horror movies. You and Eric are the comic nerds, not me. I signed up to talk Terror Vision, not WandaVision. Cat's Eye, not Hawkeye. So for my sake, can we please ease up on the comic book stuff? Well... Lie to him, Jacob. Jake? Hey, did you hear me? Lie to him, Grump of Conchu. Assure him that this is the final comic book episode, only to spring Morbius the Living Vampire upon him next week. Jake? I... uh... Do it! Look, I'm not gonna lie to him, okay? Uh... Jake, sh should I be concerned you're talking to thin air? Uh, sorry, Nick, but no, we can't stop doing comic book stuff on the pod. Ugh, cowardice. I mean, come on, Nick. The comic episodes are so much fun. For you, maybe. I mean, let's be real here. It's Moon Knight. Even when I was a kid, I never read Moon Knight. Impudent worm. Willfully ignorant of the splendor of Bilsenkevich. Jacob, cast this wretch out from your podcast immediately. Well, you could always pick up a few comics to read for the episode. Dude, comics aren't cheap, and I'm not made of money. Preposterous! Your podcast listeners are all too familiar with the opulence of Nicholas's upbringing. What is the cost of a few Moon Knight comics to one who has Fraggle Rock money? Well, even if you don't read the comics, these comic adaptions are still fun to talk about, right? I mean, we talked about Swamp Thing and Blade back in episode 18. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, we watched Swamp Thing and Blade... We also watched Faust, Love of the Damned. You watched Faust, Love of the Damned? Hey, don't blame me for Faust. That was Eric's idea. Yeah, of course it was. Your co-hosts are both imbeciles. Drop of Conchu. You must rid yourself of them. Look, I'm not gonna just cut my friends out of my life, okay? Uh, what the hell? Need I remind you of how I found you, Jacob? Shattered. Ruined. An empty shell bereft of joy and hope. All stolen from you when the Miami Heat won game six by nine points. And when you were at your lowest point, was it James Harden who came to save you? No. I did. We made an agreement there and then. I shall ensure success for your beloved sports team next season. But in return... You shall serve me. I will obey, Kanchu. Wait, Kanchu? Just going on a limb here, but did the Sixers postseason break your brain so badly that you've taken up a comic book deity as your new lord and savior? Joel B should have won the MVP this year, Nick. Let me have this. Welcome to a new episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, joined by co-host Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Well, hello there. And Nick Leamy. How y'all doing tonight? Boy, that's a loaded question, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, on a lot of fronts right now. <laughs> but here we are covering our first of the uh, proper Marvel Studios projects, and not necessarily the most horary of them, but if you have any idea who worked on the staff of this show, it's not going to be a surprise why we're covering this one. You could have picked out that this episode was coming the second they announced who was working on this show. Yes, it's it's true. Uh, although, I, I don't know. I might say that, well, I guess Morbius exists. But uh, in the, I should probably see that. I, I feel like I should make fun of it, but I haven't seen it, so I'm not gonna. I think it just came out for rental. I want to see it. I'm gonna no, I want to see it. But this feels. I'd say this is upper echelon, most horry. It is. It it ended up Marvel being, stuff. Yeah, it yeah. ended up being pretty appropriate, particularly for the episodes done by the, or at least one of the episodes done by the creators we're we're talking about, which are Justin Benson, Aaron Moore, head of Rustic Films, who I say as you know, wearing the. Rustic films, oh, you know, the they're new three moves. I want motif. to ascend. And I, oh, I said, my... I want to ascend behind you. <laughs> yeah, I need to get a new non-reflective because most of what you see in it is my lamp because it's got a really <laughs> shiny front on it. So I'm going to get a non-reflective frame. But yes, I have the I want to ascend, which is available in the Rustic Film Shop, which we mentioned our Freddy's Dead review, but we'll link to it again. Their merch is awesome. I, I see it over your shoulder and it keeps making me think of those old style national park poster ads oh <laughs> I don't, and i don't know why it's the way the light's reflecting off it so i just see i wanted to send it i think it's like devil's tower or yeah something. all you see are basically like hills or something yeah the part of it you can't see are the fucking moons which you want to make it appropriate for moon night but it's what what's kind of a fun thing too about you know we made jokes when justin benson there and moorhead were first announced and we're like holy shit you know the arcadian has caught you <laughs> because you know there's been recurring moon imagery and all their stuff you know there's the three moons and the endless Spring, I don't, I don't remember necessarily having moon imagery, but as someone whose you know, biological makeup is comes in phases and is cyclical, synchronic. Yeah, and there was synchronic. Yeah, with the the flashback with the folks being you know, praying in front of the moon and the first you know cameo of the, the hoodoo fuckamajigs, which also appear in the endless. So, yeah. You know, you you think with all that, I would have thought when I was getting dressed because I usually try to put on a cool T-shirt for these recordings, but nope, throw on my my Hartford Whalers jersey because it was cold down here. <laughs> Not even wearing my my cool new you know rustic studio hat because I forgot which hat I was wearing until I turned on the camera. So I tried. I'm sorry, guy. I let the team down. <laughs> it's funny that this is the first Marvel project we've really discussed, at least from modern Marvel, because we have modern Marvel. Yeah, we did Blade. Yeah, you know, and as big a comic book nerds as some of us are, um, there's more Blade coming. There's more Blade coming. Morbius, which is Sony, but you know, close enough. And in theory. So we're, we're about to talk Moon Knight, who made his first appearance in Werewolf by Night. And there were rumblings that film composer Michael Giacchino is going to do a Werewolf by Night short for Disney Plus on Halloween this that year. Fun. Yeah, that's what I'd heard. So I haven't seen much about it. So hopefully that's still a thing. But if so, that'll be fun to talk about. But Yeah, it's it's fun that they're they're starting to move a little bit into the the darker side of Marvel, at least with these. Because the Netflix series, this this felt more related to the netflix series than the other disney the, plus the yeah. broad yeah i started disney plus now but you know the, the daredevil and power man and all that this felt more related to those than the actual marvel cinematic verse proper it's funny when the netflix shows the, the the defender ones that you were just mentioning were first announced i was hoping that moon knight was going to be one of the ones announced and not even only having a cursory knowledge of the character just from bits and pieces from the bits and pieces I knew it was like there are elements that you can do with that character that would differentiate him 
because one of the problems those Netflix shows ran into was there wasn't a whole lot really to distinguish them. You know, there were some bits where they tried to give them unique tones, but at the end of it, it still came down to, well, so-and-so is, you know, a superhero who protects the streets of Hell's Kitchen. So-and-so is a hero who protects the streets of, you know, so-and-so. And it's, they were so similar. They had mild, well, Iron Fist has martial arts trappings. Jessica Jones has some, you know, mystery trappings, but it wasn't that much. And so they all just kind of felt like they kind of blurred together a bit. Something Disney's doing with the uh, the Star Wars series all taking place on Tatooine. Uh, yeah, so, which yeah, it's interesting that now the, the Disney shows are starting to we're starting to see a recurrence of that. Where in this rush to kind of make a bunch of product, there's not necessarily a lot that makes it all stand on its own, and it's difficult for things to kind of have a voice, which we'll we'll probably talk about more because uh, about that and even with the other Marvel shows. But before we get too far into it, we have got an awesome guest to discuss Moon Knight with. So yep, let's get into it. For our discussion of Moon Knight, I am delighted to bring on a very special guest to the podcast. He is the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Oni Press. He's the writer of novels such as the Pete Fernandez Mysteries and the Poe Dameron Freefall novel for Star Wars, which is appropriate with us talking about an Oscar Isaac-related property today. Yeah, In comics, yeah. he's the writer of The Black Ghost, The Archies, a really terrific sunspot story in the Marvel Voices series of one-shots, and most recently, The Mysterious Microface for NPR. And his new novel, Secret Identity, was just released, which is a mystery set in the comics world of 1975, which didn't occur to me when I asked you this, but Moon Knight actually premiered in 1975, so it's extra appropriate. Hey, me too. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we planned it. How apt. Uh-huh. So yes, please join me in welcoming Alex Segura. Oh, thanks, guys. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. And... We'll, we'll talk more about your stuff at the end, but yeah, talking about um, secret identity and microface in conjunction, yeah, just with you having those two recently released comic properties just made it so perfect. Oh yeah, it was a, it's, and there was a little nod to microface in secret identity, and you know it was fun because you know I had to create this whole comic book company out of whole cloth, and so you know when I was just mentioning characters, I was like, why not mention characters that I've worked on, like the Black Ghost or the Dusk and the Awakened and and Microface. So that was that was neat to kind of create the uh, I guess expanded Sigura verse <laughs> through the pages of Secret Identity. Nice. I read uh, Microface right before starting Secret Identity, so as soon as I got to the first links page, I said, I know those letters because yeah. Taylor Esposito doing the lettering. For yeah, that's Taylor. So yeah, like, yeah. Those he letters. Was, he he did a great job with the link stuff of making it feel hand-lettered. He found a font that really kind of matched hand-lettering. And, and of course, the, the microface stuff was done in the modern digital style. But yeah, he's great. All, all the artwork stuff in the pages I saw in Lynx look great. And yeah, and, and thank you so much for coming on to talk about Moon Knight. I love Moon Knight. I'm a big fan of the character. And uh, I was really excited when the show came on. I also am a big Oscar Isaac fan. As you mentioned, you know, I've got you know, I've got <laughs> I got to write him, at least in my mind, <laughs> for the whole time it took to write that Poe Dameron book, which was a blast. And, uh, you know, I feel like we'd be friends if we met. <laughs> He's definitely a friendly guy. I have that exact same feeling about Oscar Isaac for no particular reason other than he was in a ska band and I'm still a big ska nerd. <laughs> he was in a ska band in Miami, which is where I'm from. And I am I would bet money that he played at a club or a bar that I was at at the same time because we are the same age. I'm not saying we're friends. I'm just saying. <laughs> But, like, close enough. Yeah, I mean, there could be a prequel story of us bumping into each other at a crowded bar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've I've been a longtime fan of his. 
I mean, I don't even know when it started, but I, I probably inside Lewin Davis is cemented mm-hmm. him as maybe my favorite modern actor. Yeah, he's a he's a great actor. Just totally great range. He can do comedy, drama. He's super talented. And going into to Moon Knight, you know, when they first announced he was, I, I'm not a huge Moon Knight fan, not for any particular reason. I, he was just one of those characters that it's not, I did not even dislike. It just never kind of crossed my path as much. I guess in when I was big in my Marvel days, there wasn't a lot of Moon Knight content. But then, you know, they announced Oscar Isaac was playing him. I'm like, hey, a number one Moon Knight fan right here. Coming up. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite character. At least until I realized how expensive all those Marvel trades are now. Holy crap. But uh, yeah, I shelled out for the first Epic Collection, so I got that one before it went out of print. Yeah, I was actually a fan. I mean, I remember we were talking about this before the recording. I remember reading it regularly, and that was the era of like the Terry Cavanaugh run or Chuck Dixon started that series. So it, I almost took for granted that there would be a Moon Knight series. And then we went through a long period where there wasn't any. And then we'd have the various kind of revisitations like Bendis and Maleev and then uh, Ellis and the Lemire runs. But yeah, he's had so many interesting takes in the comics. It's It's been kind of wild. Now, for me, I have had like no exposure to Moon Knight before the series. None. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, you knew the meme. I, I didn't. You you never saw the Moon Knight, you know, where are you fucking nerd, Dracula? You better have my money. You never no, saw that? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> Real. Wow. That is a great meme. I've discovered that meme is like 75% of people's knowledge of Moon Knight before this series, for people <laughs> See, I talk to. My problem is, no matter how much these two like to say I, I was rolling in Fraggle Rock money, I <laughs> as a kid, my budget was incredibly like nothing, almost non-existent, so I couldn't invest in comics or, or and such, so my overarching exposure the dc and marvel was everything from the cartoons and the old shows and of course there's just nothing with moon knight yeah there was this was we're in a, a bounty of riches here with like every character being adapted in some way but yeah. when we were kids there was no none of that you get the justice league and maybe like the core avengers and that was it and that was it we got the bill bixby hulk man that was that was it for me when they yep. did those specials with daredevil and thor i thought i'd died and gone to heaven <laughs> oh yeah oh man the, there the was TV also movies, like a, yeah. i feel like there was a spanish version of the hulk i mean i grew up in miami and my parents are cuban so it was, we watched a lot of spanish tv and there was a spanish version of the hulk that was much more low budget than the bixby stuff and Ooh, it fun scared the hell out of me as a kid <laughs> <laughs> so i came to these two you know my comic experts and i was like so tell me about moon knight and jake just goes he's batman and then moved on <laughs> <laughs> It's not really true, but it's the easiest way to describe it. Yeah, I would say it's not really true. I think there's like, I don't know, I have this theory that there's two tracks for Moon Knight. There's like what Doug Mensch, the original writer and co-creator, envisioned. And he kind of downplays the the Conchu stuff to the point where you think that it might just be in Mark Spector's head. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Jeff Lemire track where the Conchu stuff is legit. And it's like this metaphysical, like super bonkers, like trippy cosmic thing that I think is nice. also fantastic. It's just interesting that you can see, read every story through either prism, and it, it's almost like a different story. That's excellent. Yeah, for me growing up, it was, in my memory, uh, growing up, I always knew him initially as the Batman-ish dude from West Coast Avengers. Mm-hmm. I knew he had his own solo series that I barely read. I did pick up one issue of a issue that would have been out at the time I would have been reading comics, which was, I picked up Moon Knight number 42. So this is one of the, the latter... Terry Cavanaugh issues. This is an Infinity War crossover. I picked this up for three reasons. 
One is the issue title is Multiverse Madness, <laughs> which I figured with Dr. was like, well, that's fortuitous. The art team on this is Gary Quapis, Tom Palmer, Klaus Jansen, Kelly Jones, John Beatty, Norm Brayfogle, James Fry, Carl Kiesel, and Ty Templeton, all in a single issue of Moon Knight. That is a lot of talent. They're all pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a lot of talent. Norm Brayfogle is fantastic. Yeah, it's, it, it's actually, this is probably the best Harry Cavanaugh comic I read. This is actually really fun. But the third thing I was hoping would be in here isn't, and it's something that's actually spinning out of something we discussed in our Freddy's Dead audio review, the last thing we recorded. So it's not in here. So to demonstrate, also from 1992, I'm going to hold up this copy of Deathstroke the Terminator number 16 and open it up to show Nick. I had for Dr. Giggles. Oh, nice. <laughs> we had an extensive conversation about how I've never seen Dr. Giggles and I always wanted it to because it was in the ad for every comic in 1992. Yeah, it was in every comic book. Yeah, every That movie comic is book. so bad and so good at the same time. <laughs> Have they remade it yet? I mean, I'm sure they will at some point. Not yet. Not but yet. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's coming. Yeah, I mean, the Mench and Kevich stuff, I reread it as the show was coming out and I'd forgotten how good it was. And there's like a chunk of stuff before they even launched the ongoing, you know, cause he shows up in werewolf by night and that's mentioned Don Perlin. Mm-hmm. And then Sinkevich and Mensch do these backup stories in the Hulk magazine yep. in black and white that are just so great. And so much of the characters set up in those stories that by the time you go into issue one of moon Knight, there's already been a chunk of content and he's already established in this really fantastic way. Like, and there, those backup stories are much more, I guess, quote unquote, adult for the time. They just feel like the HBO. <laughs> it was I had never. So they're in the first epic collection yeah. uh, that Marvel put out. So I'd never read them. And so you read the first one of those Hulk backups with Bill Sienkiewicz. And uh, I forget that might be the, the Midnight Man story, but it was one of the mystery stories. Mm-hmm. Next story, Bob McCloud comes on to work alongside Bill Sienkiewicz. And it's this He's really great. fun Hulk two-parter. There's a Gene Colan story, too. Uh, I didn't get to that one. Yeah. Oh, there's a Gene Colan one in, in uh, Marvel 2-in-1, or yeah. Marvel Spotlight, whatever one it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, Colan does one of those. One of the early things before Sienkiewicz comes in. And then the third Sienkiewicz one I read was when Klaus Jansen comes on to ink him. And all of a sudden, when Klaus Jansen comes on, <laughs> fortuitously, they decided we need to do something really dark. And that's when they introduced the storyline about Moon Knight's brother being a serial killer. That was brutal. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, it was just shocking reading it now. Yeah. Not light fair. Real whiplash, too, coming right off his initial Werewolf by Night appearances, where he's just a mercenary who, you know, gets hired by this group called the Committee, who go on to become recurring villains. And they're here, put on this goofy costume and go fight a werewolf for us. It is. It's a really iconic costume, though. I mean, I, th- I think oh, it's yeah, really, yeah. really not, not, go- not silly. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah, no, no. Totally. In the initial story, they just toss it to him. They're like, here, put this on. He's like, all right, whatever. It's your dime. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> you can tell like in that first appearance that he's meant to be like this villain, like a one off villain. And I think Mensch has said it himself, like he never really thought, oh, this is going to be an ongoing thing. And then his editor, I want to say it was Len Wein or maybe not. It was Denny O'Neill later. I don't know who it was initially. Yeah. Whoever his editor was at the time, he was doing it in World by Night, said, I like this character. Like, let's keep him going. And that's what kind of gave him a second life. Like, I don't think Mensch considered it like a, <laughs> a character that had legs. Mm-mm. Well, it's interesting because he, he slots right in with a lot of the kind of grimier Marvel heroes, you know, the Daredevil and Moon Knight and Cloak and Dagger, Werewolf by Night, Blade. Yeah. Like that whole sort of late 70s early 80s era in marvel where they were really pushing the edges of i guess what you know the bright colored superhero stuff that was out there that dc was putting out and it's interesting to see those characters all 
kind of getting their moment in the sun right now. I mean, even if the Morbius movie was apparently not good, I haven't seen it, but he's from it. around then too. It's kind of a golden era for 70s Marvel. Yeah, I mean, I was reading, when I reread the Moon Knight stuff, then I naturally just went back into rereading the Miller-Jansen original Daredevil run. And, and mm. you know, they, they pair so well together because, like you said, it's a much more adult, like, grittier take for the time. But, um, yeah, you can see Moon Knight does not a little bit to the tropes of Batman. Like, the Stephen Grant personality is kind of Bruce Wayne-ish, but mm -hmm. it's different enough that it's entertaining. And, yeah, I think Mentor had a great handle on the character and, and created some really interesting villains. And, um, well, I can't sing Sienkiewicz's praises more. You know, he's just... Oh, yeah. <laughs> even the, I, and I, I, something that fascinated me was while reading the comics, I thought for some reason it took longer for Sienkiewicz to go from his, like, Neil Adams riffing stage, where he was clearly, like, a student of Neil, to becoming Bill Sienkiewicz and then going to New Mutants. But he, like, his style kicks in, like, two issues in. Yeah. Like, he's fully formed, like, a few issues in or a few stories in, and you're, I was just blown away. Like, it was such a trip to reread those. His style, certainly, it's interesting, because I think it suits Moon Knight more than New Mutants, but New Mutants is just as good. I don't know. I love Sienkiewicz. I've got a demon bear print, you know, right by my desk that I'm looking at while I'm on all these calls all day, and it's like, ah, oh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Oh, yeah, I mean, his New Mutants run is one of my favorite runs ever. Like, I think it's the high point. Like, Claremont at peak power, Sienkiewicz, like, blowing things out like I, I think it's really fantastic you mentioned the uh the Stephen grant personality being very bruce wayne-ish now mm -hmm. i that's more so in the comics that's not at all in the show right. itself <laughs> yeah <laughs> no yeah the show i i kind of like that the show just took liberties you know they use what they like and they tweak things and yeah the Stephen grant in the in the show is very much this nebbishy british guy works in a museum is a student of egyptian lore and culture and mythology and yeah, he uh, he doesn't have a comic book equivalent, I guess. Not really. Yeah, not really. At least not from the elements I read. And yeah, it was so it was interesting going into the Moon Knight series, just from what little I understood about the characters. So, what elements are they going to take? Because especially in the last you know decade or so, maybe a little bit longer, there's always been the book kind of constantly being rebooted, and there's kind of always ever shifting takes of to, to shift something to try and get the character, I guess, to fully. Mm -hmm. click or get a, a longer run out of the character because you had the charlie houston run which has a certainly a much darker take on the character then that pivots it goes into the Hurwitz run which i guess was pretty similar from what little i remember of the, the issue i read then the bendis malieve arc which leans into the disassociative identity elements but in a different way in a lot of ways with him manifesting these visions of uh, captain america spider-man and wolverine in his head then there's the declan shalvey warren ellis run which brings in the mr knight outfit which comes up in this series but again in very different contexts than than it originally does yeah in the comic mr knight's more of the badass for lack of a better term right the more psychopath type it's well manifestation. It's, it's basically his public face like Mr. Knight is the the outfit that he wears essentially when he's interacting. It's like his business attire. <laughs> yeah. So when he goes when the police call him to crime scenes or something, he shows up as Mr. Knight. And they drop the same line there that I think was dropped in previous Moon Knight things that the reason he still wears white is he wants everyone to see him coming. That's such a great a good one. reason yeah. <laughs> for being. And it's such a great I mean, Declan did such a fantastic job with that redesign. It's just it's so iconic. Gorgeous. And and you would think, like, why would you tinker with the costume like Moon Knight, which is already very iconic, but he came up with something like arguably equal to it. 
Yeah, and they're still using it. Currently mm-hmm. in, the, in the Jed McKay uh, Lissandro arc, it's the Declan Shalvey costume design. And for anyone who's not reading it, so we'll probably end up talking about the Jeff Lemire, Greg Smallwood run during our conversation, because if you're to pick one run that if you saw the show and you want to go back to the comics, yeah, that's probably the one to go to, because some of the directors were going to be talking about Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead during the conversation, but they specifically cite that run as, yeah, this was kind of a touchstone for us, particularly Greg Smallwood's visuals and some of the, the surreal elements to it. But if anyone's not currently reading Moon Knight, I'm very much enjoying the current run by Jed McKay. And I think he's found an interesting approach to the character to take him. And plus, a lot of the current run is kind of playing on the fringes of the Marvel Universe, which is something I always like. Moon Knight's Therapist is a character from Nomad at the moment. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's, right. It's, that's right. I, I'm, his office building is the House of Shadows. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah, and it's really grounded, but it's, you know, you can tell that Jed McKay is really pulling stuff from all over the place, which is fun just as an Easter egg, you think, but also he, he weaves it together really well. And the art, I feel like the art gets better every issue. Yeah. Lissandra's art has been fantastic. I'm, I'm blanking on the other artist who came in to do, who did the devil's rain one shot and did the, I think they also did the stained glass scarlet one shot, but, but also a terrific artist. Mm-hmm. So yes, please. In fact, we've got a trade of the first uh, collection. We're probably going to be given away as part of this episode. But oh, nice. Check out the Jed McKay run because yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Well, uh, you know, to pivot to the show and talking about the costume designs, I thought that they really, really nailed both of those. Yes. In the series. And the way they switch back and forth to, like, favor each personality, I thought was just brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and they gave it a reason for existing, you know? Like, it's, yeah. it's hard to get all the different iterations of Moon Knight, boil them down into something like six episodes worth of story. And I thought they did a really good job in cherry picking the different beats to make it work and also teasing other things like Bushman and other elements of his mm-hmm. origin that we didn't get to see. But if we have a season two, we will hopefully see in some way. Certainly the third personality in there as well. Right. Would be. Yeah. Jake Lockley. Yeah. See, that's what upsets me, though, because we don't get to see what his outfit looks like. And that I would have loved to have seen some like, you know, avenging angel type thing going on. Right. Oh, his iteration <laughs> of the Moon Knight costume. Yeah. yeah. I'm right. sure it would been so. amazing and badass, but nope, 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 nope. <laughs> and I'm a little frustrated with that personality because he clearly exists. He shows up at one point. They're like, what the hell was that? I don't know. But they don't pursue it. And I realize they're busy. Yeah. But then they have that whole, like, in the psych ward bit where they see the shaking sarcophagus where he's clearly in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's mm-hmm. like, we'll come back to that. Like, no! <laughs> that drove me insane. <laughs> I was like, go back and open that. I want to see what that is. Next time. Next time. It's episode seven. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like the part where he, he essentially emerges in episode five when he's talking to the doctor and to Ethan Hawke in full Ned Flanders mode. Mm. and he you know he starts talking real different he picks up the pointy award on his desk and i i didn't the first run through i thought well that was kind of an odd scene and then after realizing it was the third personality i sort of enjoyed that scene a lot more in fact i was watching it right before coming down to record Mm -hmm. which kind of talking about the personalities it leads me to about the one thing i think might be the absolute best part of the series which is very simply oscar isaac's performance yeah yeah absolutely. so much fun. and i i was thinking about it a lot in episode five specifically because the first time i watched it you just stopped thinking about him as one guy performing two roles yep yeah. it's like oh these are just two oscar isaacs that makes sense <laughs> <to me now." laughs> we have been blessed in a world with two oscar isaacs yeah. and just an, an absolutely incredible performance all through but when that he really starts hitting a stride when they're, I keep saying they, when he is acting <laughs> off himself, 
Like, it doesn't even occur to me at all. Like, nothing breaks it. Nothing breaks that this is one guy doing it. I just, I was a little bit in awe of it and how... Well, because it's deceptively simple looking, because you, yeah. you just assume it's two people, but it's not. It's him playing to yep. a green screen and then playing to a tape of himself, or, you know, I'm obviously boiling it down in a simplistic way. It's not a tape, but... I. I did hear that he wasn't actually playing to a green screen or a dummy. Like, okay. He, now obviously, he wasn't playing to himself, but he actually brought his brother in as a stand-in. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so... Like, I was wondering who they got as the double for yeah. some of the scenes, yeah. So it was his brother, so like he could almost relate to the chemistry to some level. Oh, that's cool. I mean... <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, that's good. That probably helped a ton, yeah. Yeah. I, I was reading a, an interview with Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead about it, and they were talking about one of their biggest concerns going into it was, uh, and I didn't write down where I read this, so I apologize to the wonderful writers and interviewees on some random website out there, <laughs> that their biggest concern going into it was how to convey when it was Stephen Grant or when it was Mark Spector and had it. It was not a problem. And then just like two minutes into <laughs> to his performance, they're like, oh, yeah, no, never mind. We're good. His yeah. whole yeah, yeah. <laughs> physique change everything his changes posture yeah. his face the way he moves the, the man exuded different personalities it was never a question who he was when he switched it was amazing i mean even okay so we, we've addressed the fact that he's got multiple personalities and then the show addresses where the british one comes from it's the one he leaned into to help protect him from the realities of his abuse and it makes sense it didn't at first i was like why is his accent so over the top Mm. Why is it so out there? And it's like, oh, right. It's an eight-year-old's impression of what right. this accent would be, which is perfect. I, I thought that was a nice, really brilliant touch. Though there is one small problem with it, the fact that nobody reacts to it the way he's stated in reality. Yeah, <laughs> like, In London, he would have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I thought that was a very neat and smart way to kind of tidy it up or, or make it all sync up and explain itself. It was perfect. Yeah, and I, you know, he might have had it. I, I see what you're, what you're saying with that, but yeah, I don't know. He's a nerd that works in a museum. I don't think the, the accent's going to be the first thing to like, you nerd. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought all the leads on the show were uh, were pretty strong. I mean, Layla, yes. Harrow, and, and we were talking about this before the recording, but Harrow is not considered, you know, not that Moon Knight has a massive <laughs> rogues gallery, but when you think of the people to put in a Moon Knight show, like Harrow is maybe in your top 10. Mm -hmm. So I thought they did a really nice job making that character interesting. and. Ethan Hawke really creeped the hell out of me. I really enjoyed the approach to Harrow. So going in into the show just again with, with basically like a nominal familiarity with Moon Knight, it was like, all right, so who's it going to be? Because I pretty much only know Bushman and Sanglass Scarlet. And at the time I was like Taskmaster, but that's already been done. And Taskmaster wasn't really an intrinsic Moon Knight villain. It was just in the first Charlie Houston run. Right. And then they announced Arthur Harrow, and I said, "Oh, I'm not, I don't know the character." <laughs> I had to really dig back. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my roommate is a big Moon Knight fan. I asked him. He says oh, that doesn't ring a bell, but I, I had to have read it. And the characters appeared in one comic, which is Fist of Conchu number two, which was a six issue mini. Here's and, number yep. one. <laughs> <laughs> I was just showing off like all the eBay stuff I bought while like reading, you know, while watching the show, like issues that I had as a kid. My whole collection was you know, gone to the winds after college, but um, I ended up rebuying a ton of Moon Knight stuff just because I it reignited my love for the character. And, and there's been so many weird iterations of Moon Knight over the years. Well, you'll have to let me know. So right now, if, if anyone's listening to this episode and you've seen the promo image for this episode, right now the 
with special guest star Alex Segura is currently in the Mark Spector Moon Knight font. Oh, nice. <laughs> so if you want it in one of the other various Moon Knight fonts, let me know and I can absolutely change it. No, that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> I tried doing the, the latter Terry Cavanaugh, Mark Spector, Moon Knight, <laughs> and it, my attempts at it just kind of came out like the Avengers West Coast logo. So we'll switch it up. So. That's funny. Yeah, no, I think I'm sure it's great. Um, You mentioned earlier, like, what was your first exposure to Moon Knight? I think for me it was there was when I was a kid, Amazing Spider-Man, would, some titles would go bi-weekly and Amazing did it with this story called Round Robin, the saga, the sidekick's revenge. So it was Amazing Spider-Man. Mark Bagley had just come onto the book. Hmm. And it was about Moon Knight's sidekick Midnight, who was the second Midnight. Not the Midnight Man, but early in Chuck Dixon's run, Moon Knight has a sidekick named Midnight, who he believes is dead and he leaves, thinking he's dead, but turns out to not be dead, and he's turned into a cyborg by the Secret Empire, as things go, you know, these things happen. (laughs) And this is about... I, I don't remember the intricacies of the story, but that was my first kind of moment of realizing who Moon Knight was, because Moon Knight's one of the many guest stars in this arc. And so it's Deathlock, the New Warriors show up because Mark Bagley had just come off the New Warriors. Yeah, so I think that was my first exposure to Moon Knight and West Coast Avengers, like here and there, because I, you know, West Coast Avengers for me was was my Avengers title. I wasn't a big Avengers kid. I read the X-Men. Really? Yeah, I was mostly an X-Men kid. And when I read an Avengers book, it was West Coast Avengers. Wow. That was absolutely the same for me like hawkeye yeah. and mocky really yes yep. iron man thor <laughs> eh, whatever yeah avenger spotlight yeah you know hawkeye i think there was also i think i grabbed it too because there was a a moon knight backup in avengers spotlight or solo avengers and there was a great shroud it was a shroud moon knight battle like so this was in the era between ongoing moon knight books and um i remember that was one of my first comic books ever very nice Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Druid is sadly underappreciated under the main Avengers team. Wait, I know you're a Black Knight guy, Eric, but uh... Black Knight and Monica Rambo was on the team at that time. I read those as well. I think Avengers, one of the Machio, Ralph Machio issues after Stern left was one of my first mm. comics ever, but and that John Buscema art is can't top that. The Tom yeah, Palmer. Fabulous. But um I I ended up being just more of a West Coast Avengers guy. I read the Emperor Doom graphic novel. Mm-hmm. at some point you know which heavily features wonder man and it was like oh and i was just all in on wonder man and New west coast so yeah that was a good graphic novel yeah jake did you end up picking up the first essential moon knight i did not okay because one of the things that's in there is there's a series of defenders appearances that moon knight is in which feature wonder man and also feature one of our favorite <laughs> comic creators on pod because it's drawn by keith giffen yeah <laughs> the legend <laughs> Source of our Giffen School of Filmmaking shirt available at tpublic.com. Just lie. I, I, I was going to get the uh, one of the trades, uh, and I went over to our favorite comic shop, Captain Blue Hens. Shout out, Captain Blue Hens. Yeah, Go buy stuff. Um, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't have any in because, of course, going to buy the trade paperbacks of the Marvel character that is currently, you know, being broadcast on TV means that uh, you're you're a little bit late. Because everybody has already said, hey, Moon Knight, I'm going to go buy all that stuff. All they had was the Omnibus, and I did not have $125 at that given moment. But I am still thinking about it, CBH, if you still have it. Because I I still, I mean, even after, you know, prepping for this, I do want to go back and read some. Because I I honestly don't know when my first exposure to him would have been, at least specifically. And I'm sure, I'm positive it's because my brother bought some Moon Knight comics. Because he was more into that side of Marvel than I was, and I was a big Daredevil kid. Were you guys Daredevil readers at the time? Or? My brother was. I wasn't. Yeah, I had a few of the DG Chichester run, which is funny because when I mentioned before we started recording that my roommate and I were speculating on who was writing Moon Knight during the 
the Stephen Platt run. And my first thought was, was it D.G. Chichester? That seems like something D.G. Chichester no, probably would have been. No, he did S.H.I.E.L.D. before Daredevil. And his, I think his Daredevil run with Lee Weeks is still one of my favorite Daredevil runs ever. Like, yeah. It's a great little like response to Born Again. My my brother is, is a big Daredevil fan. If you go to his site, comicscomicscomics.blog, mm-hmm. there's a number of posts about Daredevil. But he was just writing, his last post was about image and and early image books and all that but he talks about there was a period in the early 90s when he and i you know we grew up in comics and then we got to high school and we both kind of got out of him and he got back into comics because of daredevil mm-hmm. and it was mm. the the man without fear series oh yeah the miller ramita jr so it was right around that time but prior to that he had been into like daredevil was always his guy daredevil basically if you jumped off a building in new york uh <laughs> my brother was was right there with you i was i was upstate in uh westchester with the x-men yeah same i would just shift over i was i was with spider-man or the x-men and kind of alternating but i was a big batman kid too yeah i was Mm -hmm. i was really honestly mostly a dc guy until fall of the mutants and then i was dc and mutant books and you know i would branch out some more into marvel but now it's funny because lately i've been going back and buying every time i go into favorite comic shop captain blue hens i try to buy a back issue of some random marvel book just to like i I bought a power man and iron fist this week because i used to look at those with awe as a kid as like one of those i this is funny i was reading it and i was always wondering why i always had that reaction to it and it's because of starsky and hutch Mm -hmm. starsky and hutch was the one show we weren't allowed to watch as kids wait what yeah no it was the only one my parents that, that was foreboding fascinating choice that's yeah of all the shows to ban i think it's because huggy bear was a pimp (laughs) <laughs> that's that's my only guess I mean, neither of my parents remember this but we it was verboten in our household to watch that we couldn't watch that and we couldn't see a clockwork orange as a movie and those were the only that's things fair. we were ever that's yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> child's play but i think i associate power man and iron fist with starsky and hutch because i mean in the late 70s whatever i'm old we determined that and yeah anyway this is a complete tangent but now i'm just riffing but it was uh yeah those two shows and moon knight kind of slots again into that side of marvel for me yeah kind of grim and gritty street level hero which it's funny because this the show doesn't capture that particularly at all no it's very much in the yeah i guess the best like we were saying the best run to point someone to is the lemire smallwood stuff which also features like guest star by francesco francovia who's fantastic yes friend of the pod francesco Francesco is awesome and wilfredo torres was and, also uh, great. James Stoko, yeah. James and, Stoko. and the way they incorporate that with, uh, for folks who haven't read it, Greg Smallwood does the bulk of the run, but there's a stretch in the middle where Moon Knight is essentially shifting through his various identities as part of his disassociative personality disorder. And as part mm-hmm. of that, each personality is done by a different artist. James Stoko does, I believe it's the Mark Spector stuff, which is set in the future with him fighting werewolves in space. Uh, Jake Lockley is Francesco Francovia, and Wilfredo Torres does the Stephen Grant portion. Yeah, it was true. It's an amazing, it's amazing art in that series, and Jeff is fantastic. I got to work with Greg, Francesco, and Wilfredo at Archie, you know, doing covers or doing interiors, and they're all so so talented. So to have so much talent in that run is really amazing to read. And and one thing that Lemire does really well is at the end of that run, he kind of repositions moon knight's origin yes and that's the origin you kind of see reflected in the show without spoiling too much but Mm -hmm. you see conchu's influence much earlier it's not just this one moment that happens at 
kind of recalibrates mercenary Mark Spector, you can see Khonshu's basically been influencing Mark Spector since he was a kid. Yep. I just want to say real quick that I love the fact that we're in a conversation where you can just throw out the term werewolves in space and it's okay. No one bats an eye. (laughs) (laughs) That run is fantastic. And it's appropriate too, because I guess there's various wolfish characters. If I remember correctly, that the wolf character in that arc is actually a nod to an older character. But again, the character started because of werewolf by night, who is a character who keeps coming up from time to time in the book. So, yeah, and one thing that Lemire did that I thought was really important and that was lost in earlier like iterations is he brings back the supporting cast. Like I know, you know, Marlene is written off and Frenchie is either killed or or paralyzed at some point. So Moon Knight is winnowed down into just being a solo character with no supporting cast, but Jeff brings him back even if they're like just mental projections or hallucinations from his like time at this like metaphysical asylum but yep i think it added a lot of heart and um i'm blanking on the guy's name the uh the older man who is from the original Sing crowley Kevin, who crowley, has a yeah. uh, cameo in this show which i didn't catch until going back and reading the comics where is he on the show he's the the living statue in the very first episode oh yeah. and then he appears in the asylum sequence he's calling out the bingo numbers in episode four and there was a midnight man reference too wasn't there? there's a midnight man yes uh the gaspar duliel character in episode three is named after the midnight man yeah, yeah, and, they yeah. Both, and tom bogart yep. they both have the the collector kind of aspect to those characters mm-hmm. uh but for crowley when i when i saw the character initially in episode one uh, you know, with this comedic bit of Stephen Grant talking to this living statue, I thought I was like, well, that's kind of a fun, cheeky reference to the fact that, you know, a chunk of the Moon Knight comic is spent with him talking to a statue because it, during the early chunks I read of, you know, the the ongoing run by Doug Mensch is when he actually has the Conchu statue, puts it up basically in the lobby of his mansion <laughs> yeah, exactly. and goes and, and will often stare at it. And when no one else can hear, you know, Conchu talking to him or whatever, but then went back and watched it again. And, and yeah, it's Crawley. Yeah, that's funny. And it's also it's interesting in that run early on, whereas like Batman never tells anyone his secret identity unless he has to like Moon Knight. Like, yeah, sure. Here, I'm Moon Knight. Like he just tells his whole crew like two issues into the series. And then it becomes like a his newsboy legion of like yeah. assistants or like. Yeah, I was as far as characters who get changed from the source material. We, we mentioned briefly um, the character of Layla, who's mm-hmm. played by fantastically by Mae Kalamaui. She's great. Who's Amazing. A version of a character called Marlene in the comics. And yeah, going back and reading those old issues of Moon Knight is, man, there's rare seeing a, a character like Mar- who gets treated worse than Marlene does in those early issues. Yeah. Like one of her first appearances is one of Mark Spector's parties has been stormed by, you know, terrorists with machine guns. And, oh, there's people with guns in there. Marlene, you go run distraction while I suit up. She's <laughs> instantly captured. <laughs> she keeps getting tossed into danger like yeah actively not like inadvertently the, he actively tells her in distress yeah way too many times not so much on the show no not at all no i i really enjoyed the the way they modified that character for the show i'm glad they, they so much more agency who's mm-hmm. egyptian they gave her character more agency the aspect of her father being an archaeologist who was killed by mark specter's crew his unit carries over from the comics but i liked it that they that they used it for an eventual plot reveal in episode four of this whereas in the comics she knows it instantly because she she sees her dad get gunned down and then she's in in one of the iterations she's in uh, sitting before the statue of Conchu when mark specter's dead body gets brought in and plot down and she's like, i'm glad he's dead he killed my dad long pause but he is kind of hot 
Yeah. <laughs> not, not the most nuanced moment. Yeah. Speaking of the uh, actors involved, um, all three of the main leads really had great chemistry and worked really well together on yes. and off the set. Mm-hmm. They were really good at helping each other build up the characters and like their ideas for each other. In fact, Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke encouraged uh, Mae Calame to go talk to the directors. And she initially had no scene with Harrow. Like, they didn't have that one-on-one talk where they go back and forth. And she's like, I mm. think this would be a good idea. And they latched onto it, and it happened because of it. So, Oh, that was a great moment of tension. Fantastic moment, yeah. When he teases, like, the truth. That's, mm-hmm. That, to me, was a great, like, oh, what is he talking about? Like, just, well well-placed plot absolutely and that would not have happened without the three of them like working together as well as they did so it was nice it was a real, real nice touch and that's good that's kind of late in the process too so. yep great ad and speaking of ethan hawk too someone i was very excited to see on the show again knew nothing about the the character because he only appears in one issue and i the character in the show is i thought was such an interesting approach you know them playing up the you know the character who thinks he's legitimately thinks he has altruistic intentions I liked the element of him being a former Fist of Conchu mm-hmm. and the way they played that up. You know, the, the villain is one person who doesn't think Mark Spector is you know, completely out of it in terms of his effort that he instantly it's is like, like oh, yeah, there. Conchu's real. Yeah, yeah I can yeah. I can see him throwing tantrums and stuff. It was a really fun element. So I was <laughs> really curious. Like, oh, what's this character like in the comics? Nazi scientist. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much better the show. Off of just what you said. <laughs> he was set up to be a, a recurring villain and an agent of a broader organization called Omnium. Mm-hmm. And he was basically two-faced, but without the scarring. He had kind of a rictus yeah. flair on one side of his face. But yeah, to my knowledge, he only shows up in the, the one issue. Because each of those six issues of Fist of Kanchu is basically like a done-in-one that's kind of setting up a different villain, presumably to go forward. But. There are two things I really liked about this. First off, Ethan Hawke's kind of subtle, like, playing it lower approach to this character, mm-hmm. I thought really rammed it home. I thought mm-hmm. he was perfect. I thought his delivery was spot on. I really loved the character he built up. And also, it really comes across, my favorite villains are the ones who think they're the heroes. Right. And he really landed that. Like it was, it was very clear that he had his logic together and he had brought it all together. And and just hands down, your villains make the heroes. And so it really brought the whole show together for me. Plus, you got to assume his favorite movie was Minority Report, right? Or Daybreakers. <laughs> I am looking forward to doing Daybreakers. Daybreakers is so fun. fun. <laughs> It is fun. It is not. I mean, it's not high it's art, just, but it's just no, yeah, it's, it there's one a lot to talk flaw, about, but it's movie. great. Otherwise, <laughs> I saw it in the theater. Yeah, I was not. A, Did you? Yeah. Because you're a vampire fan or a Spirit Brothers fan. I think a friend of mine and I were just like, let's watch a couple movies. And we watched one movie and then snuck into the Daybreakers. One, nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But, you know, Ethan Hawke is so charming he's, and he's a great actor. So, you know, he can make even like the crummiest scripts sing. He only gets better with age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gets better. He's a fine wine, which which is really evident in Boyhood. Yeah, yeah. you get to see it happen. Yeah. <laughs> you live it. <laughs> yeah, I just saw him in The Northman the other night, which he's not in long, but but he's certainly fun in his the duration he's on screen. I'm just predisposed to like everything Ethan Hawke is in. I mean, he's got it's he's got to try hard for me to not like a movie that he is in. Yeah, uh, it, it's been done. I'm blanking on the name, Bagul. Sinister. sinister sinister yeah i like sinister yeah. he's yeah. in the sinister movie you don't like 
When yeah. he's out of it, Sinister 2, you love that. Sinister's fine. I literally just saw a, an article today, or it was on YouTube or something. Is Sinister 2 really as bad as its reputation? It's like, Not on our podcast, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the outlier on this one. 2 is better. It brings the whole mythology together. We'll get to it at some point. It ties it all in. <laughs> it really brings the room together. It really ties that room together. <laughs> it's a nice lamp. But yeah, I, I mean, I really, ever since before Sunrise, I you know, I was a Ethan Hawke fan. It's funny, my brother can't stand him. And it's one of those things like we we won't even get into it. Like I normally I will needle and poke and argue with my brother about everything. But he's like, yeah, Ethan Hawke, he's just I'm like, no, we're just not going to do that. <laughs> wow, I love how this is like a recurring topic. Oh, yeah. No, he he knows I like him a lot and he hates him. I, I think he just saw reality bites and then didn't like him in that. And that oh. was just the end of it. But the door was closed. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is with my brother and Ethan. He's just wrong. You hear that, Jer? I know you're not listening. You're wrong. <laughs> He's a great, and he's he's a fascinating interview too. Yeah, very much so. Even his Moon Knight ones. Yeah, watch. Uh, there was one of his interviews, <laughs> a clip of one of his interviews that was making the rounds a lot on Twitter. Where I think where he was awful frank, basically about kind of what he saw as the position of superhero movies in the current cinematic world. But yeah, I thought he had a lot of interesting things to say. He, I saw some of that. I, I thought he had some good things to say. I, I don't know. He, he's a thoughtful guy. Yes, very. And they introduce him in this, you know, to, to Every Grain of Sand by Bob Dylan. So it's like, well, look. Yeah. Which at the time, I'm like, that's an odd choice for this. And then I realized, no, this entire show is about sand in one way or another. So this makes sense. Well, particularly a lot of fun little bits on rewatches in this. I didn't I forgot until I was watching just for recording episode six when he's in the asylum at the end and knocks over the coffee cup. When he sees it, he sees it full of sand. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah a lot of bookending, but a lot of recurring sand imagery with it. Yeah. Especially when, he, you know, and then he's dressed like Ned Flanders and it's really great and they call it out yeah <laughs> and yeah and now we know alex we got to get you back for the daybreakers episode but yeah definitely I'll, I'll happily rewatch it before we do that let's talk a little bit about your recent stuff so i guess we'll start with your comic first appropriately enough so mm-hmm. yeah mysterious microface the first comic from npr's uh planet money division yeah i mean this was wild i was a guest on the planet money podcast which is npr's business podcast and they the high concept, I guess, for Planet Money is they find entertaining ways to explain like complicated business things. And one of the things they wanted to talk about was the idea of IP and how comic book IP or characters could become these like billion dollar industries through movies and TV and things like that. And so the hook was they were going to try and buy a character from Marvel or DC. And so they interviewed me as like a longtime publishing person. And I basically said, no one is going to sell you a character. It's not going to happen. You're literally one good story away from billions of dollars from this thing becoming a huge hit. So no one's going to sell you one. But, you know, you can go into the public domain and reshape a character and make it your own. And so we finished the episode and then they they reached out and said, we're going to do that. We found this character, Microface. I didn't realize this was a real Golden Age character, but he's got audio powers. Like he can throw his voice. He can blast you with sound. He can do some slight x-ray vision. And they asked, do you want to write this? Do you want to help us reboot this character? And also, you know, how would you do it? And I said, the best way to do it is to make it a legacy hero. Like, basically, you know, there are three ways. You could have continued the adventures of the Golden Age microface. You could just completely reboot it with no connection to anything else and make him look completely different. Or you can make it a legacy hero where it's like, in our story, it's Sam Salazar, an NPR reporter who is the grandson of the Golden Age microface. And so we got Jerry Ordway, who is a living legend, mm-hmm. to redesign the character. You know, he's he's got such a great reputation for modernizing Golden Age heroes. And so he he took the costume and, and redid it for the modern day. And Jamal Eigel does the interiors. And yeah, it's NPR's first ever comic book. 
it's 40 pages of story and there's a lot of business fun stuff in there, but it's also, I think, a pretty fun superhero story and hopefully not the last Microface story either. I hope not. I had tremendous fun reading it. And oh, thanks. Speaking of superhero stories, so then we've got your your novel that recently came out, Secret Identity, which recently, congratulations on making uh, Laura Lippman's bibliophile book picks. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> amazing company to be in. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Laura Lippman was the, the, one of the writers that I was reading that got me into wanting to write my own books. And she's become a friend. And um, that was a huge honor. Um, but Secret Identity, it's set in 1975, New York City. And it tells the story of Carmen Valdez, who's a queer Cuban-American woman who moves from Miami to New York to pursue her dream of writing comics. She takes a job at a third-rate publisher called Triumph Comics as the secretary to the editor-in-chief, this kind of blowhard named Jeffrey Carlyle. She makes it clear she wants to write comics. She pitches stuff. She submits sample scripts. And then finally her boss says, look, it's just not going to happen. I want you to be an editor. I have plans for you. Like, you know, down the line, this is what you'll do and so on. And um, she's adamant. She's like, I don't want your plans. I want my plans. I want This is what I want to do. But he basically puts a kibosh on it. and. She is approached by a younger colleague, this young editor named Harvey Stern, and he tells her, look, I've got this assignment to launch the first ever female superhero from Triumph Comics. Carlisle gave me the assignment. It's due really soon. I have no idea what to do, and I know you want to write. So can you do it with me? Co-write it. Then there's a catch. The only catch is she has to do it anonymously and ghostwrite this character. And Carmen's really smart. She understands there's you know red flags with the whole thing, but it's her dream is to write superhero comics. And so she writes it anonymously and it becomes the legendary links, which is, this is a kind of a mock-up. I don't know if that you probably can't see it in the audio world, but there's a poster. <laughs> I've been holding up. We're all about props on this audio only podcast is me holding up comic for our whole discussion. Yeah. I was like, when you held up that comic, I was like, is this also a video podcast? But, um, <laughs> no, uh, I just like prop comedy. We like to tease our listeners. <laughs> you cannot see this. <laughs> Anyway, she co-writes The Legendary Links with Harvey and this acclaimed but also curmudgeonly artist named Doug Detmer, and it becomes a huge hit. It becomes Triumph's biggest hit, sells like crazy, and then Harvey is murdered. She finds Harvey dead. So nobody knows she's written this character. Nobody knows she's created this character, and she has to basically investigate his murder to figure out what happened to her friend, but also to reclaim her idea. And it's a novel, but interspersed in the novel are sequences from the comic drawn by Sandy Jarrell. And so you see like Carmen's vision for the character and you see different iterations of the character as different people work on the book. Like, so there's a moment where a pretty, I guess, misogynistic writer takes over and it totally changes the content. A different kind of artist takes over and, and the comic book sequences are kind of in conversation with the prose, which was really fun to do. In reading about the Carmen character, you know, a woman in, you know, the offices of this male dominated industry of comics in, in the mid 70s, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of people that applies to. But the first person my brain goes to is Louise Simonson. Mm -hmm. So I was reading the book. It's like, I really hope with all this name dropping, there's going to be a Louise Simonson reference. <laughs> and then early on, there's Carmen runs into someone who works for Warren. I said, oh, here we go. And so, yeah. so thank you very much. For oh, good. I'm glad I met your <laughs> Louise Simonson name dropping. <laughs> yeah, no, Louise. I've known Louise a long time, and she was one of the first people I reached out to. And I said, I'm working on this book. This is the mystery. Like, And she told me a little bit about her experiences working in comics around the time. And it was hugely helpful. And I spoke to a lot of other people that worked in comics at the time or worked in comics around that time, women in comics, and also just publishing people to help me with like fact-checking because – 
I mean, I've been in comics a long time. I have not been in comics that long. You know, I was <laughs> I was not alive in 1975, but it was definitely the fun part of it was the research. That was a big part of, of the journey. So nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for putting the, the book together. You've talked oh, about thanks. it a few places, but I'll particularly tell folks, you know, you did an interview on the book with John Suntress at Word Balloon. But I, yeah. I really want to tell folks to check out to go to Murder by the Books YouTube page where you did a couple interviews uh, with S.A. Cosby. Oh, yeah. Who, Sean's great. wrote the fabulous Razorblade Tears and is just his live streams are so much fun. And you guys have such a fabulous. He had great questions. Yeah. I mean, we had some technical difficulties that time, but he had great questions and. I could really feel like his passion for the book would be yeah. so flattering that he read it and enjoyed it. And it's such high praise when he's writing like these like modern crime classics. Yeah. Razorblade Tears is fabulous. And yeah, so, so good. Yeah, please go check out those two chats. They're a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Um, anything else you'd like to plug? I know you've got a Spider-Man comic coming out in August, right? Yeah, I'm writing a short story in Marvel's Edge of Spider-Verse, which is super exciting. I grew up reading Spider-Man and... Uh, I can't really say which of the Spider-Verse characters I'm working on, though if you are a good detective, you can probably figure out who's already said what they're working on, and I'm probably being the good soldier by not saying what I'm working on, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll it's going to be a lot of fun. I had a, a great time. I got to use one of my favorite Spider-Man villains of all time in the story, and a lot of you know really funny Easter eggs, but yeah, this is great. You know, I love Moon Knight. I'll talk about Moon Knight at, at any time, so if you want to do it again, I'm happy to come back. Oh, excellent. Would love to have you anytime. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This is cool. Once again, big thanks to Alex Segura for coming on the pod. I was Yay. so happy to have Alex on. Yay. And honestly, everybody, go check out Secret Identity, which is currently on sale. Get the microface issue and keep an eye on the solicits for upcoming comics. He's got his Spider-Verse comic coming up. Uh, he's also got a comic coming up for Interpop Comics, which is called The Rejects. So yeah, a lot of stuff coming up from Alex, and he's a fabulous writer. Can't wait to have him back for Daybreakers, apparently. So Heck yeah, that'll be a good time. Well, we did Moon, now we got to do Day. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, yin and yang, night and day. That, that's how it works, right? And it's no secret on this pod, but by virtue of us doing Moon Night too, that we're big comic fans. And seriously, if you are a longtime comic fan, the amount of references and secret identity it is so rich and. It is so thorough and such a, a fun portrayal of the comic industry. There's a lot to enjoy there on top of it being a really interesting mystery. So but in the meantime, so now we're speaking about Moon Knight and speaking about other comic properties. So which is extra appropriate because speaking of folks who have stuff coming up. So Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, two of the directors who are part of the reason we're working on this, they have their first comic coming out, which is from Skybound, which is a subdivision they publish under Image Comics. And they are putting out a new anthology series called After School. And it's going to be a series of one-shot stories. And Justin Betts and Aaron Moorhead are doing the first one. So the series is simply called After School. Each one's being done by a different creative team. But the first issue is Justin Betts and Aaron Moorhead. Comes out June 8th. So check that out at your local comic shop. What do you think the odds them doing a comic will get them a table at uh, Baltimore this year? If only. Uh, I wish. Would be nice. How good would that be? I, but I'm legitimately thrilled that they're doing a comic i was yeah. like i mentioned one of if we had ever had had a chance to interview him sincerely one of my questions was going to be is like look I, you guys talk frequently about how much you love alan moore so have you ever considered doing a comic and now they're gonna and they're continuing to make a bigger impression in in the marvel cinematic universe because they're doing yes, loki as well they're doing loki season two which is exciting very excited for that so that'll kind of get us into something we were talking a little about a little bit earlier, which is 
we kind of touched on a little bit of our thoughts on Moon Knight as a whole, but so how's everyone been feeling just about kind of the, the Disney Plus shows that have been coming out in general? And I mentioned this because I think it's an interesting thing to kind of help contextualize Moon Knight a bit. I mean, I like them, and I like the kind of added depth they're giving to the things that are going on in the universe, and they're clearly leading up to something and helping with that. That being said, Moon Knight felt very separate from everything else. Disjointed. Like, it's the only one that I know of that had no overlap whatsoever with any other franchise or story arc. Deliberately so. Well, they they mention uh, Black Panther in it. Sort of. It's oblique, but it's there. There's an oblique Black Panther reference. There's a, a nod to a plot point from Falcon and Winter Soldier in there. But the primary director... We've talked about Justin Benson there and Moorhead a lot. They did two episodes, but the primary director on this... Mohamed Dayab. Yep. Who worked on Cairo 678, Clash, and Amira. Yeah, Cairo 678 I did watch and is quite good. And it's currently, as of this recording, it's on Netflix. I think Clash is only available for rental. But if anyone has Netflix and you want to check out a, another movie by Mohamed Dayab, it's Cairo 678. And yeah, I, I was excited when he was announced not knowing his work, but I thought it was interesting that they got an Egyptian director to work on the show and to do the bulk of the episodes and it being kind of separate from the rest of the Marvel shows was something that he kind of mentioned a little bit, which is there was one interview he gave where he noted that, you know, he wanted this show to have a bit of a unique feel, but also basically I think the, the log line he mentioned was basically he wanted it to be a friend of his told him or something, you know, if there wasn't a Marvel logo in front of the show, I wouldn't have thought it was a Marvel show right away. And he was like, good, that's what we were going for. I do like his uh, approach to Egypt. Like he went out of his way. Like he said, you know, the way it's always portrayed is we're always exotic. Women are, are submissive, men are bad. It was very important for him to break that. And they went out of their way to give it a true Egyptian feel. And you can sense it. You can feel it throughout the way this the culture is included, like I really appreciated the work he did for the show. I was just happy they didn't shoot it through that lens that makes everything yellow, like they always do for, <laughs> for Egypt or Mexico or places like that, because it's it's it goes a long way towards just making people realize that hey, it's just a normal fucking place, man. It's not the the savage third world or whatever morons think it is. It's a city. Now. All that being said, it is important to note that they unfortunately had to shoot all the Egyptian scenes in Budapest, Hungary, due to permit issues. <laughs> but you still get the look and feel. Yeah, but they did. He mentions in an interview that he said, "You know, I think it's kind of indistinguishable." He says, "I'm really Agreed. proud of the work we did in replicating Egypt." And yeah, I thought they did an incredible job. But you're speaking on the look of the show, and that was one of the the crew things I wanted to touch on very briefly in terms of who were the the DPs on the show. When I was watching the show initially. The Muhammad Diab episodes were done by Gregory Middleton. And so I recognized his name right away because I watched Game I was like, oh, it's DP from Game of Thrones. He's really good. I didn't clock initially who the DP was for Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead's episodes. It just, for whatever reason, didn't click. Plus, I'm used to, on their feature films, Aaron Moorhead's always been his own DP. You know, he always does the camera work. But for this, they had a separate DP who is Andrew Draws Palermo. Yep. Who is again didn't register in my head but it should have because horror fans would probably know he worked with adam wingard on your next but he's yes. also the dp for david lowry because he was the dp on a ghost story and the green knight most recently yep phenomenal director of photography so the, yep, from that perspective for both dps it is a terrific looking show speaking of gregory milton it's important to note that he worked on slither 
<laughs> that alone needs to be mentioned. Did he? Oh, yeah. And Final Girl. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and A Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting. Oh, nice. No. Slither. Fuck yeah. I love Slither. It's so gooey. <laughs> I've never seen it. You will. No, you will. I know. <laughs> I'm going to fast that day, but I'll watch it. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to double back to what Eric asked before about placing this in relation to the other Marvel Disney shows, the TV shows. I've loved all of them. Like, I, I loved WandaVision. I loved oh, yeah. Loki. I, I'm probably in the rare bird that liked Falcon and Winter Soldier best out of that trio of shows. Really? I uh, Spy story yeah, kind of no, thing no, like no, that. Yeah. That That's that's good. Yeah. right in my wheelhouse. Which is not to take anything away from any of the others. I mean, I certainly have enjoyed all of them. Moon Knight was probably the one out of that whole bunch that I was absolutely most looking forward to. Which had nothing to do with the character and everything to do with the people in it and on it. And one of... Alright. Like, I'm a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm I'm not a... Uh, you know, there's too many superhero movies kind of person. You know, I grew up with comics. This is like a golden age for me. I love having as much superhero content as possible. And I watch other movies because we have a horror podcast. I don't know why other people can't. I'm probably ranting about something Eric's going to edit out anyway. <laughs> Because this is not a road we want to go down, no, really. I don't want to argue it. about superhero movies and all that stuff. This, but. They, we're dancing around something where I would go off on a rant. So this is what I was trying to avoid. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I would just place them all in the like what you like and enjoy the, the good things in heaven in front of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you don't like them, don't like them. You don't have to. I, whatever. I, I do. I absolutely love them. And I, I've approached each of this series with a little bit of trepidation. like. You know, WandaVision, it's like, okay, this looks good. I never read those comics. And I get a little worn out with the way Marvel has a tendency to use one thing to set up other things. Yes. Because it very often will feel like that's the only goal of what you're watching. And I like stuff that just tells its own story. And I think all three of the, not so much Loki, but WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier were very much vehicles to set up future stories is what it felt like. And and as good as they were, and as extraordinary as they had the you know the episodes, in the end, there was a part of them that felt more functional than artistic. I don't even mean that as a criticism. It's just when you're part of that, and when you're you're serving a purpose, even if it's a cool purpose, it feels like a purpose, and it, that takes for me, just for me, a little bit away of what you're doing in the here and now, or it can, you know. And as a comic book fan, you're kind of used to that style of storytelling, so it doesn't like offend me or anything. But right. it's it's very present, especially in like modern big two comics where everything is setting up. So like every issue of Justice League for 17 years has been setting up a next crisis, you know, mm -hmm. and you, you miss some of what you just telling the story in front of you. And with Moon Knight, because it was at least one degree divorced from the Marvel Universe writ large, it was just telling its own story. It wasn't setting itself up for a sequel, although it had elements of that to it. Because, you know, you why not? But if it didn't get a sequel, like it wouldn't break my heart because it told a story. And it told the story it wanted to tell from start to finish. And I, you know, it certainly leaves quite a bit of room and hints and Easter eggs and whatever for more. But they're not the structure of it. The structure of this story is this story. It's not half this story and half the next story yep. already mm -hmm. or 
you know, laying groundwork for the bigger story. And I, I really appreciated that. And I, I going into it, I had hoped that's what it would be. And I know that they talked about wanting to do that. And I do think they achieved it. That actually, um, you can see that in the way they even contracted the actors. Yeah. Like Oscar Isaac was contracted for six episodes done. Like they haven't even held on to him for future projects. Like they have said, you know, they might be interested in future projects. And Oscar Isaac was like, well, if they have a good enough story, then I'll do it. You know, I'm like, oh, Which, wow. If there's any one motherfucker on the planet, if you can get him to a 15 movie deal, it's Oscar Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even care if you don't want to be Moon Knight anymore. Fucking make him Captain America in the next movie. I don't give a shit. What's what's the Kevin Smith thing about uh, Ben Affleck? He can play Jaws and I buy it. That's Oscar Isaac for me. <laughs> like whatever this guy does, I am, you know. You you know he's he's the horrible monster in Ex Machina and Inside Lewin Davis and then he's Poe Dameron, which and you're gonna have to definitely edit this out, Eric. Hey everyone, Eric here in post production land. In lieu of listening to Jacob make controversial statements about Disney properties. I think this time will be better spent talking about some comics that'll be coming out from previous guests of ours the same day this episode comes out on June the 8th. This isn't a paid spot, but we have the bouncy music, so you can pretend I'm talking about Squarespace or something if you want. Mainly, these are creators we're very fond of, and we just want to give a shout out to their work. We already mentioned Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead will be releasing their first comic, After School Number 1, through Skybound on June the 8th. Ram V, who came on the pod to talk about West Craven Swamp Thing with us back in Episode 18, the Crisis on Infinite Stuff episode, and was just nominated for an Eisner for Best Writer, has Aquaman Andromeda number one coming out. This is a miniseries with art by Christian Ward, who also has a vampire series that just launched with Image called Bloodstained Teeth that you should check out if you like vampire books. And this Aquaman book is going to incorporate a bit of cosmic horror into Aquaman's corner of the DCU, so definitely one for horror fans to check out, alongside Rom's work on Carnage for Marvel. Not horror-related, but Danny Lore, who came on to talk Blade with us back in the same episode, episode 18. Danny's co-written a new miniseries with Ivan Cohen called Multiversity Teen Justice. It's a six-issue mini featuring a group of teen superheroes, and Danny's already done great work writing teen heroes as part of Marvel's Champion series. Danny's fabulous, so please check out the Teen Justice series at DC, and also pre-order Danny's upcoming sequel mini to Transformers Shattered Glass at IDW. Not related to previous guests on our pod, but we tweeted previously how much we enjoyed the Nubia miniseries that came out from DC, which was co-written by Vidya Ayala and Stephanie Williams. And Stephanie is writing a sequel series, Nubia Queen of the Amazons number one. And art's being done by Aletha Martinez, Mark Morales. It has a terrific cover by Kari Randolph. So we absolutely cannot wait to read that book. So all of those are coming out on June the 8th. And I also hope you're enjoying the Johnny Music track that I paid $40 for, because despite the fact that I decidedly do not make Fraggle Rock money, I would rather be poor than deal with battling people on social media over Jake's inflammatory opinions. So please go check out those comics, support your local comic shop, and now back to Jake, our resident grump of Conchu, talking about Oscar Isaac in our Moonlight Review. I'm going to pause here because Eric is going to edit out what I just said, and I hope he just leaves in a blank dead air so you don't know <laughs> but anyway look i i love him and anything he's in he's he's really become one of my favorite actors as i mentioned before and i he's just so phenomenal in this that i think his performance transcends even 
some of the bumps in the story. I, I, I feel like this one, it has moments where it's a little sluggish. It, it doesn't feel as smooth as some of the other ones. Not quite as polished, I guess, as a story. Not not real criticisms, just, you know, it's a little crunchier than, than the other things. And I, I like that about it. But his performance so transcends any criticism I would have of this show. It's like, whatever. Everything you said is absolutely correct. That being said, bumps aside, they spend a whole fucking episode in the afterlife, and I was down for that. That made me so happy. (laughs) That's the best episode. Oh my god, absolutely. Not only was it just the kind of, like, a really great engine for exposition to, you know, why he's the way he is, his past, and, and what led to this, but just delving into an actual afterlife and gods and and the fields uh you know the elysium fields not elysium this is egyptian this is a fields of reeds it was brilliant and fun and really touched on the egyptian mythology in a way that i didn't expect them to lean into and it made me so happy i really hope they do more with that going forward this is this the correct me if i'm wrong is this the only marvel dalliance into an afterlife that we've seen in the movies black panther um, yeah, Black Panther. True, that's true. We got Black Panther, which is the one that gets mentioned is the, it's the reference to the afterlife in the Black Panther yeah, but episode five. It, it's like so we got those two. I'd be curious to see if they do any more changes there. Of course, Tolerant, uh makes reference to you know this is your afterlife of choice. So it's neat to know that they're they're approaching afterlifes in multiple facets. I was wondering how Marvel would touch on that. It's neat to see them touch on the philosophy of all that. I'm, I'd rather have it here than like Spider Man. So yeah, I'm with absolutely. You. Yeah, that would. It's different vibe. <laughs> Plus, you know, you you get the afterlife where the dude, you know, ends up off the boat and turns into sand, like you know, fades out like the imaginary friend in Inside Out. <laughs> <laughs> bing bong, bing bong. Oh, that broke me. <laughs> that movie broke me. <laughs> what Inside Out? Oh yeah, tears, just waterfalls. Okay. Jake hates Pixar if he can't tell. I don't hate Pixar. <laughs> it's not that Jake hates Pixar, it's that he's dead inside. <laughs> I'm not even dead inside, man. Look, I was coming home the other day listening to Hit Somebody by Warren Zevon and I got choked up. Don't tell me I'm dead inside. Right. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, see, I'm just dead inside at wrong moments. <laughs> it just hits on one of my triggers. Anytime someone is like sacrificing themselves for others, I'm gonna lose it every time. Yeah, I Actually, my trigger is big speeches in movies that make people laugh at me when I get choked up like fucking Independence Day. But I try to like I try to like Pixar movies and they just they bounce off me like like bullets off a of Superman. And I just feel bad about it. Like I didn't I, Inside Out was fine. I, but, you know, when when what was it? Bing Bong Bing goes bong. away. It was like, all right. <laughs> also, we're doing a Marvel property. It's bullets bounce off. I'm like Hyperion in this <laughs> Squadron Supreme, you know? I was going to say Iron Man, then I went with Superman because it's the more iconic bullets bouncing off of. Right, right, right. But yeah, I get more emotional in shit like Moon Knight than Pixar, and I don't know what that says about me, but I don't have a therapist to tell me, so we're just going to assume I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, is that not the button I expected to end on one day? So let's talk about Disney Plus Marvel shows for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I, you know, I, it's funny, I... I wanted to have more overall to say about Moon Knight than I, I think I actually do. Because it's just, it's great. I love the performances. I think the director, the cinematographer is phenomenal. It's a good story. 
I don't, yeah, I, it, I, I don't have many notes, although I do have one. So we, we haven't even really talked about Kanchu yet at all. Mm. And we, we mentioned earlier that this is the more overtly horror of them, which is, you know, it's got a toe in it a few places here and there. But the introduction of Kanchu is definitely one of the more overt horror elements to it. Mm-hmm. You know, what you get the darkened hallway and the lights going out. It was creepy. Down. It was great. And then he talks and it's fucking F. Murray Abraham. I was like, oh, hell F. yeah. Murray, hell I was yeah. so happy when he was announced as the voice of Kanchu. I didn't know. Who? Has horror chops from 13 Ghosts, Mimic, and I got to throw in the Grand Budapest Hotel there, too, because the man's amazing. <laughs> also, he plays C.W. Longbottom as the sci-fi writer on Mythic Quest, which is the Apple program. Yes, he's amazing on that show. If you've ever watched, one of his co-stars and one of his foils in that is a character named Brad, played by Danny Pudi, who is on Community. So F. Murray Abraham is our community connection for this episode via Mythic Quest, which is a funny show, too. You should watch that if you haven't seen it. Hands down. Worth your time. Also, another stupid thing that got me all choked up was an episode of Mythic Quest. I don't feel good about it, but it did. Was it the COVID one? That one broke me. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The COVID uh, one. I was a <laughs> fucking mess at the end of that. All right. Well, at least one other person cried. and I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a sap. I haven't seen it. I just want to point out that one of the F. Murray Abraham movies, horror movies specifically, that Nick didn't list might be our Doug Jones Day 4 movie next year. Because I picked Night Angel, Jake picked Legion, Nick called the shot on this year's, so it's coming back to me next year. And I just got it in the mail last week, so I haven't watched it yet. We'll see. Nice. Oh, yeah, we got our, our Doug Jones episode coming up, too. Yes, we, we do. Gotta, I got to yeah. get on that. But so to circle back real quick to the Marvel stuff, the kind of the reason I wanted to mention it real quick was, and again, not to go on a whole big, long tangent about the, the broader Marvel U and, and the superhero movies and whatnot. No, go ahead. I already took my turn. You're good. You're up. <laughs> no, because mine would be much longer. But I was restraining myself. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I when I saw the first episode of WandaVision, for the most part of it, I was really excited because I thought, oh, shit, they're actually going to get weird. It's what I say now. I'm not saying this to be inflammatory, but a large part of, of the Marvel movies is they're, they're somewhat designed to be a homogenized product, which is they you know, want to have similar tones. A lot of people sometimes think creator voices get removed entirely. The, the creators say that's not the case. You know, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead have said. We felt like we had a lot of voice in what we're doing. Uh, I haven't seen Doctor Strange 2 yet, but there's people saying there's a lot of Sam Raimi in that, whatever. Yeah, there is. But WandaVision was one of those. I was like, okay, we're really shifting away from the formula and doing something out there. So I was really excited. And then, but every now and again, it would shift into being part of the broader MCU with the stuff with S.H.I.E.L.D. on the sidelines and whatnot. And I was like, eh, okay, is what it is. And even that, they were playful with it and with a bit of, you know, the punchline about recasting Quicksilver and whatnot. It just got progressively less weird as it went. It did. Yeah. And by the last episode, I was kind of, eh, but I still, I, I quite liked it overall. And then the rest of them, I've just been kind of, yeah, it, it's fine for most of them. You know, I enjoy watching them, but, but I get kind of fatigued by something you touched on where it feels less like, you know, it used to be, there would be like a little button that would kind of lead you into the next thing. But now everything it feels like is being, somewhat constructed as dominoes where it's this thing has to tip over into the next into the next into the next i blame age of voltron 
Uh, yeah, yeah. But if we go down the, the road about where this started, that's going to be a long talk. I'm just poking oh, at him now, yeah. folks, <laughs> trying to see if we can get him going. I've, I've been so good. This almost came up in our <laughs> comics episode, and I dodged it then. But so all of that to say that that was one of the things I I liked about Moon Knight was, in fact, if I had a wish about Moon Knight, I wish it had just been like go further, like you know the the asylum stuff that we got. That was fun. If, if it had been more fluid the whole way about reality and what is isn't happening and stuff like that that'd be good ideally the show is what it is but for me it was like oh i wish we could get more of that stuff but we got some of it and the some of it we got was very good and well look we mentioned earlier talking with alex is if that element of the show appealed to you go check out the jeff lemire greg smallwood run on moon knight it's all been collected in a trade. I think it's 14 issues, so it's all self-contained. And that that's what that run is, is all that stuff. I'm almost positive Captain Blue Hens has that one. Oh, you should pick it up. And if not, they can order it for you. Because, I mean, it's I mean, Greg Smallwood is really taken off now with Human Target, and everyone's... Oh, so good! And his art in Human Target is terrific, and he's doing his own colors. But on Moon Knight, for just extra coolness... His colorist on that is Jordi Belair, so it's it's just a gorgeous looking book. And Jeff Lemire's a writer we love here, so yeah, please please go check out that run. What a nice dude! I got to talk to him at Baltimore. I was going to say last year, <laughs> last year didn't exist. The last year life existed. Oh man, <laughs> I was looking at my last Baltimore program the other day from 2019. Oh, God, it made me so sad. But but yeah, so all that to say was I I, I was very glad that for Moon Knight we got. Something that was somewhat, you know, largely its own thing to a degree. But the other part of it, too, that I thought helped with Moon Knight was I thought they did a better job constructing it so it didn't feel like it had the Netflix bloat issue, even though it's not a Netflix show. Agreed. Yeah. Because it's one across all different platforms and even you know, the Star Wars shows on Disney stuff, I think, have this to an extent, which is trying to structure your narrative to fit within X number of episodes and pacing everything properly wandavision had an edge in this because everything you know, they were doing parodies of specific formats so you always had a bit of a gimmick for every episode and stuff like that helps and i'm i'm struggling to fight off on another tangent i had, I had with my room what did they blow it on boba fett anyway no this is a I, i've had a lot of talks with my roommate recently about serialized television versus episodic we're not going to go down that road but so one of the things I liked about Moon Knight was it did have some semblance of where it had unique angles where it felt like it paced itself better. You know, the first episode is constructed entirely based around, you know, Stephen Grant bouncing in and out of different places and not realizing it. And you as the viewer like him don't have context for what's going on. Can I well, I just want to interject with one little stupid thing because it's about episode one. So I've been to the British Museum where they have the Rosetta Stone. And the stuff, and that's what he's supposed to be basically working in, the British Museum, and in the gift shop. And when we were there, we got a chocolate Rosetta Stone, and I kept thinking about that, because it's the stupidest thing we could find. <laughs> and I kept thinking about when they would show the back room, and the, you know, he was like, these aren't even really Egyptian. And they're like, man, you can buy chocolate Rosetta Stones in real life. I, I'm with you on this one. <laughs> Wasn't even that good. Tasted old, which I guess... Apt! <laughs> makes sense anyway the problem is it was like 25 different chocolates all in one so <laughs> you could buy a rosetta stone umbrella 
That makes no sense to me. <laughs> it rains a lot in London. That I I get umbrellas in London. I'm so proud of myself for that, and it was so stupid. <laughs> but yeah, Moon Knight had a. <laughs> Sorry, you were trying to make a point, Eric. <laughs> but yeah, Moon Knight had you know little bits you know with where I I just thought it structured itself overall better. Episode two, we have you know, the villain conversation, and we get the Mister Knight reveal. And when episode two ends with all of a sudden they're in Egypt, you know, there's a big bit with him pulling back the curtains and all of a sudden we're in Egypt. And I was like, oh, cool. we're already here and in, in going into episode three and we've already shifted locales. And so we're doing bits like that to keep things fresh. And, and episode four, which is one of the Benson and Morad episodes, that's where we kind of get the extended horror bit with the weird, you know, undead creatures in the, you know, in the one tomb and whatnot. So I, I thought it did a better job than a lot of other shows in terms of trying to pace itself properly within the allotted time so it doesn't feel like it's spinning its wheels. There's things I wish it did differently. There's things I wish it leaned into, things I wish it, it left out, like little quibbles. But overall, I think the, the broader structure of it was pretty good. And related to that, I don't think we mentioned him earlier. A quick shout out to the primary writer on the show was Jeremy Slater. Now, a lot of the other, I guess a lot of the Disney Plus shows kind of have a, a big writer's room who work on all the shows. If you look at the writer's credits on all the shows, you'll see names that carry over between Moon Knight, What If, Falcon, and the Winter Soldier. I, I know specifically there's writers who are on all those. But the primary writer was Jeremy Slater, who worked on a, a few feature films, I think probably most infamously as he was responsible for the first draft of the Josh Trank Fantastic Four movie. The first draft. But he was also the showrunner on The Exorcist TV show, which I have not seen. I've heard good things. But I've heard it's terrific. So whenever we get to The Exorcist, I'm going to check it out. So yeah, I, I, I kudos to him, I thought, and the rest of the writers involved for putting it together that way. And again, Mohamed Diab, Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead, the lead actors, like Nick mentioned, it felt like there were a lot of people who actually were able to have creative input and, and help you know, steer the vision of the show as a whole. And that was nice. Yeah. And it, and it felt like that. It didn't feel, as you, you mentioned earlier, it didn't feel homogenous at all. It surprised me how violent and bloody it was for Disney. Yeah. I, it's certainly less so than, than some of the other shows. Wait till you see Dr. Strange. But one of the things, random thing coming out of Moon Knight was again, we, we talked a little bit about this with Alex, which is the character has had such an ever shifting dynamic the, the core components have kind of remained the same with him having different identities which originally were literal identities which were you know billionaire playboy stephen grant and then you know the man on the streets jake lockley is a cab driver which is essentially moon knight's matches malone persona and over time that evolved into actual personalities and disassociative identity disorder and things like that but one of the things that's been interesting is especially over the past decade or so i was watching all these writers come up on moon knight try and take their approach to the character and say, all right, well, what can I shift about the character to make him actually kind of fully click? Cause he's always kind of been a, people will generally refer to him as like a C list Marvel character, rightly or wrongly. That's sort of the reputation. And again, I really encourage people to check out the Jed McKay run. That's currently ongoing. It's rough, but it, it's really interesting. And it's a really fun approach to the character with essentially he is still the fist of Conchu, but, he and Conchu were on the outs after Conchu forced him to take on the Avengers, all of them. Oh my. <laughs> in a, an Avengers arc called, uh, uh, what was it called? Age of Conchu was the name of it. 
But all that led into a story online where in current Marvel U, basically nobody trusts Mark Spector anymore. They're like, look, you attacked all the Avengers. Conchu is currently in prison in Asgard. Nobody trusts him at the moment. He's, you know, all the recurring characters are gone. So he's basically, he is carrying out Conchu's mission, even though he basically wants nothing to do with Conchu himself. He said, but my job is to still protect the people of the night. So that's what I'm going to do. And he starts up an organization that he calls the Midnight Mission, which leans into the, the midnight elements. His secretary is a vampire. The Midnight Mission? What mission's at midnight? <laughs> so he says to me, he says to me, <laughs> you, you want to live again? I said, yeah, Conju, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I said, I'm tired of working for the gods. So why, why don't you blow him to bits? <laughs> yeah, we skipped a few episodes on our tick references, so glad we got that one in. Yeah, and so Conchu has procured a new fist of Conchu in here, who is a uh, character who refers to himself as Hunter's Moon, who has a great line where he shows up and to fight Mark Spector and has, you know, says, I'm the fist of Conchu. And Mark Spector says, ah, I'm the fist of Conchu. He says, even a man has two hands. How arrogant of you to think that a god would have only one. <laughs> That's a good ass line. That's a very good line. They have a really fun dynamic because Mark Spector, something the, the show touches on is his Jewish heritage. And in the comics, it's his father is a rabbi. And so Mark Spector is someone who has come from a position of faith and then has now works as the avatar for a, an actual deity. And in the context of the current run is now on the outs with that deity. The other character, Hunter's Moon, whose real name is Badir, and his gimmick is he's the son of two doctors. And he's like, I, I was someone who came at things from a purely scientific avenue. I had no interest in religion encountered Conchu, and now he's basically a zealot. He's mm -hmm. I'm all on board. And he's not fighting Mark Spector. He hates him. Mark's like, are we supposed to fight now? He's like, no, I don't like you at all, but we're brothers because we're both the fist of Conchu. And so th there's a lot of fun dynamics. And like I said, he takes up the House of Shadows with the fucking interdimensional evil house is now his midnight mission, <laughs> which he takes up and leads to another fabulous line where someone comes in and says, are you Moon Knight? And he says, I got a moon on my chest and I live in a haunted house. You do the math. <laughs> so, anyway, just to gush about the Jed McKay run for a bit. But one of the other things I wanted to mention about the comics is coming out of all Marvel properties. If you're a comic reader, when you come out of the cinematic adaptations, there's always the question of, all right, so which bits of this are they going to reverse engineer into the comics? You know, which, which bits of this are going to be something that they're going to be like, oh, okay, we're going to fit this into the actual comic continuity. Not the best example, but the one that always pops into my head is Toad from the X-Men. You know, all of a sudden when the X-Men movie comes out, all of a sudden Toad is no longer, you know, with the, the frilled costume and, and, you know, this impish character. All of a sudden he looks like Ray Park and he's black leather outfit and stuff like that. So always, and as the comics should, you know, they should shift to incorporate more popular elements. So I'm curious to see how long it takes before we get, A, the Layla character, who's ostensibly Marlene from the comics, but but definitely unique in a lot of ways, but also when she takes on her persona as the Scarlet Scarab in the final episode, which is a name of an actual Marvel hero. But I'm very curious to see how long it'll take for them to reverse engineer and incorporate Layla and the Scarlet Scarab persona into the actual comics, because she has certainly been an enormous hit on social media and a really fun costume design, too, in the show. I, when I first saw it, I literally said out loud, what, the Blue Beetle? And uh, <laughs> Close. Scarlet Scarab. <laughs> 
or the Silver Scarab from Infinity Inc. So you know, there's 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 a lot of scaraby things happening here. But no, I I thought she was great. I Amazing. I didn't know whether that was an existing character or not. But my guess in answer to your question would be Tuesday, as to how quick they'll be incorporated into yeah. Which hey, do it. You know, she was cool. Character was cool, like you said. Good costume design. Bring it on. Absolutely. That's how you get Harley Quinns. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious to see, and I I would love to see her in the the actual MCU comics. But yeah, so overall thoughts on Moon Knight. I quite enjoyed it. It's cool to see Benson and Moorhead get in in at Marvel, and obviously a successful one because now they they've got you know Loki. You know Nick's got Fraggle Rock money now. Benson and Moorhead have Marvel Cinematic Universe money. So oh my god, yeah, I like that Nick tried to sneak that one in. I didn't have Fraggle Rock money. I was poor. They didn't have his parents were teaching him a you know rich people fiscal responsibility lesson, and he thinks he's yeah you, know, you still grew up rich, Nick. I hate you both. <laughs> You thought you snuck that one in, bitch. You didn't. <laughs> you dropped it at an opportune time when you knew we weren't going to fight back, but you forgot we were going to fight back later. It's real simple. It doesn't matter how fiscally responsible my parents were. I was poor. <laughs> doesn't mean you didn't grow up rich. <laughs> I didn't grow up rich. The fucking creamy Caesar over here thinks he's... Yeah, anyway. <sighs> We're doing all the callbacks now. <laughs> the Back into the episode four reference pool. But yeah, to wrap up, I, I was really looking forward to talking about this show, even outside of the Rustic Films connection. And yeah, it was, I enjoyed the show. Thought it was fun. I guess we'll have to do Archive 81 at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we probably should. I, you know, I, this is what, the third TV thing we've done? Uh, well, we touched on their Twilight Zone episode in episode eight for Benson right, Morehead. So the fourth, so and then we did Midnight Mass. We did the Freddy's Revenge or Fred and, and oh, and they had the the pilot for Freddy's Nightmare. So, so yeah, so kind of the fourth, yeah. Well, on our TV rankings, I I hate to say it for our you know rustic guys, but this is probably number two to Midnight Mass for me. But this was I Midnight I Mass it. Chainsaw Award winning Midnight perfect. Mass. Yeah, <laughs> I love this show. You know, it was a little clunky. They had some like minor issues that to work through, but on the whole, it was visually stunning. I loved the chemistry of everyone involved, and I had a really good time with it. I mean, like this is a show that had a talking hippo trying to guide two Oscar Isaacs through the underworld on a boat traveling to cross sand. What's not to like? Tua Rat made me so happy. <laughs> I loved her so much. I, I really did. I liked all the elements. I liked how different it was from the other Marvel shows. There's just there was a lot of cool stuff here, and I think. They probably picked Moon Knight to really try some stuff with some new creators in the Marvel U. I, I, I don't know for sure, but certainly Moon Knight's one of those characters that you have a little hard, little harder time for people saying, well, you have to tell this story because like, nobody would even agree on which one you have to tell. And I just thought it was a real success. And I hope they, they keep going with this kind of content. If I had to hazard a guess, I think they're just having fun rounding out the cosmology. I mean, they've dealt with so many different things at this point between like the Eternals and the Asgardians. And they were like, we're, we're filling in all these different cosmology gaps. Let's throw in Moon Knight, too, just so we can, you know, it fits perfectly in the arrangement you could choose from gods, you know, celestials, deviants. They're really just trying to build out the fact that there's this large universe and there are many different facets to how you can look at it. That's true. 
Sorry, I'm I was sitting there thinking, I was like, thank God we're outside. You're talking about them leaning into properties, and I'm just getting flashbacks too. Thank God Marvel owns the X-Men now. Marvel Studios owns it because we're, we're outside of that stretch of the Marvel comics where they were like, you love the Inhumans. You've always loved the Inhumans. You never love the X-Men. You've always loved the Inhumans. It's like, I did like the Inhumans, but good Lord. Yeah, no, I everybody liked Black Bolt more than Wolverine. I remember that growing up. I mean, come on. Nice try, but no. But no, this was, yeah, this was a fun show to talk about. Always fun to chat comic-related stuff on, on the pod, and especially with Alex. We just had the absolute best time. He was great. Can't wait to have Alex back. And again, please, if you like mysteries or you like comics, check out Secret Identity. The Microface comics available from NPR's website, so the actual specific page. I don't know if it's through Planet Money. I I, forget, I ordered it, but I can't remember what the exact page was. But we'll link to it when this episode comes out. But please go support Alex and his work. He's terrific. Can't wait to have him back for Daybreakers. And yeah, this was fun. Fun to watch and fun to talk about. Absolutely. I had a good time. Thanks, Alex, for coming on. That was really great. Can't wait to have you back for Daybreakers. We're just You're going to be our Ethan Hawke guy from now on. Hell yeah. Just go ahead and rewatch Sinister and yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was Sinister, yeah. We, we really got to do Sinister, those two movies, because that's going to be a big, rich, fascinating discussion. Eric might actually throw a chair at us from his house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. I'm ready. I think that's a dynamic we haven't hit yet, where there's a movie that Nick and I like and Eric doesn't. Uh, that might be right. I got a feeling it's coming. So me and, me and Eric are pretty close in, in our opinions. Yeah, you're both often wrong. <laughs> you're both often wrong. <laughs> well, what better note can we end on than Jake saying that? So again, <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Really hope you've enjoyed listening to us talk comics and Disney Plus for a bit and talk Moon Knight. If you like this episode, again, by all means, check us out on social media at Scary Stuff Pod on Twitter at Scary Stuff Podcast on Instagram. We've got a letterbox page. Just go to our website, scarystuffpodcast.com, and you really help us out. And if you want to leave us a review on iTunes or someplace like that, that'd be fabulous. But mostly, just thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you want to send us money, we can provide you with an address. Just DM us. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll be back with another episode soon. So it, right now it's looking like June's going to be a busy month for us. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. This is Eric signing off. This is Jake saying grump out. <laughs> this is Nick saying, I can't tell the difference between my waking life and my Fraggle Rock money life. The one with the money bin is your Fraggle Rock life. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Nick frozen? No. Okay. Your camera so keeps your video freezing, so keeps freezing, so I can't tell. I got four gigabytes of RAM. We were lucky we made it this far. <laughs>